Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the book Rakundra's First Cruise by Arthur Ransom. This is the ninth part of the reading, and we're on chapter 18. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there, for $5 a month, you can not only support the podcast, but also get access to exclusive Patreon only book readings. Now, on with the story. Chapter 18. Spittum to Ramsholm. September the 8th. Barometer 30 inches of mercury, about 1,015 millibars. We had a fine night at our Spittum anchorage. I went on deck two or three times, but those high clouds at midnight had been true prophets. The wind changed to the south. Rakundra swung with her nose to the land, and at dawn the sea was scarcely rippled. Those six windmills on the skyline of the hill were now on our starboard bow, and we had a kindly little wind to take us out to sea again and round the point, after which it would be clean in our faces, for I had set my heart on going due south and taking Rakundra through the channel between Worms and the mainland, instead of back by the way we had come through the deeper, wider channel between Worms and Drago. The Baltic pilot says, Hapsal, whither we are bound, can be approached from the northward by the channel between Wormso and Nuke Peninsula, but it is so narrow and winding that the navigation is difficult even with local knowledge and assisted by the boys. There is no need to explain to any yachtsman the passionate desire of everyone on board to take Rakundra through that way. I had had the chart on the wall of my room all winter and was sure that, given a fair wind, there would be no difficulty about it. So we decided to make no change of plan but to beat south, get into the shelter of the land as near the channel as we could, and if the wind should change, why, then rejoice and run through to Hapsal. The wind did not change and blew from the south, shifting in its most annoying manner so that every time we went about we found ourselves pointing nothing like so well as we had hoped. We spent twelve tedious hours in making the dozen miles between Spittum and the entrance to the channel, sailing, of course, a very much greater distance as we zigzagged against that fitful wind. As soon as we rounded Spittum, at about half past seven in the morning, we met three schooners racing northwards, neck and neck, and after that, throughout the day, a long procession of sailing vessels, with their booms wide out. Schooners, goose-winged, came rejoicing from the south, whither we were painfully beating. Sturdy, worm-so schooners, a few clean, smartly painted fins, cutters running home to Reval, others bound for Kaspervik. More than twenty sail we counted, and we did not begin to count until many had already dropped hull down to northward of us. Ship after ship made a fair and unforgivable picture. In a sailing vessel beating against the wind, meeting other sailing vessels running free, you know the whole bitterness of the poor man picking the crumbs from the floor at the rich man's feast, and looking at the men on board the running vessels as they idly lean on their railings, watching your slow progress as they flash by, it is hard not to believe that they are feeling all the selfish complacence of the rich. It was smooth water sailing, and the cook made jam with the cranberries that had been Anders Ringberg's conscience money in the matter of the salt fish. The ancient was very much interested in the jam making, and while I was steering, I could hear them in the galley discussing the far more valuable art of making marmalade, an art that we discovered for ourselves slowly and by means of accidents, as Charles Lamb's Chinaman learnt the delights of roast pork 
through the burning of his house. The recipe for marmalade on Rakundra is as follows. First, buy your oranges. Then eat your oranges, but do not throw the peel into the sea. Then boil the peel. Then, but here I must revert to our actual discovery, which was made on Kittywake and not on Rakundra, which is a far steadier boat. Then, in Kittywake, make an inadvertent movement from one side of the boat to the other and upset the whole boiling into the bilge. Collect the orange peel from the bottom boards and stew once more with plenty of sugar, when the result will be indistinguishable from the best English marmalade. The important discovery, apart from the fact that by this process you can both eat your oranges and have your marmalade, was the upsetting. Until that event we had not known that the water of the first boiling should be poured off, and the final stewing done with fresh water, and this last is the whole secret of marmalade. Having once discovered it, we never troubled again to rock the boat, and can make just as good marmalade in Rakundra as on the diminutive and unstable Kittywake. Jam making was in full steam when at 11 I got a good fix of our position, with Talnas beacons in line on the mainland to the east of us and Saxbinis lighthouse far away on the island of Worms keeping a bearing of southwest by west. After that we took turns in keeping a pretty careful lookout, for many outlying rocks and shoals explain the unwillingness of the Baltic pilot to give any directions for this passage except the advice not to try it. By 2.45, we were about 200 yards from the Savinova Sparboy. We went about and, with a slight change of wind, pointed on the starboard tack southeast towards the mainland, going about again when we came near the rocks awash north of Telness Point. It had long been clear that we could not hope to get through that day, and I began to search the chart for a possible anchorage and decided to leave the fairway close to the entrance to the channel and to anchor between two shoals north of Ramsholm. Accordingly, after passing close by the buoys that marked the Sibignieva bank, we steered southeast, keeping the lead going, and at 6.30, while it was still light enough to see that we had a sandy bottom, let go in two fathoms of water, lowering our sails but not taking the halyards off or putting the covers on, so as to be able to clear out at a moment's notice. Just as we had everything snug, I saw a cutter, the last of that long procession, coming with a fair wind from the south, out from between the mainland and worms, through the channel I wanted to enter in the morning. With the long-distance glasses, I saw her pass between stakes and was able to take a bearing of them and identify them on the chart. If need should be and the wind should come from the north, we should be able at least to get so far in the direction of shelter. However, the wind did not change, but rather strengthened from the south. We had warm jam to our supper, as we say in Yorkshire, and lay very snug and quiet in a place rather beastly from a sailor's point of view, because it gave us so little elbow room in case of a change of wind, but very fine to look at. Away to the southwest was the wooded island of Worms. South of us was the desolate point of Ramsholm, and far away eastward was the low-lying mainland. As dark closed in upon us, there was not a single light to be seen. The Worms Lighthouse at Saxbiness was at the other side of the island and hidden from us. Odin's home had sunk below the horizon to the north. There was no light on shore in cottage or farm. Rakundra tasted all the isolation of Noah's Ark, alone as the flood receded and showed the peaks and uplands of a depopulated earth. She was, however, aground upon no Ararat, but swung gently to her anchor 
in a little natural harbour, every mole and breakwater of which was hidden underwater. Chapter 19 Ramshold to Hapsal through the Nuke Channel I had left the lead overboard as a means of telling whether our anchor held, and three or four times in the night I went on deck to have a look at the lead line. Once, when the wind had shifted and we had swung a quarter of a circle, the line, stretching far out on our beam, gave me a bit of a fright, but I went forward and found that I could easily hold the boat by one hand on the chain. I took in the lead and dropped it again, and satisfied myself that we were not moving, and finally turned in so thoroughly reassured that I slept until six and was very unwilling to get up even then. However, the wind began to make a rowdy hullabaloo overhead, and at half past six I turned out sleepily to find that it was blowing hard from the southeast, dead against us. I had been told that the channel was impossible for a sailing vessel against the wind, and that the local sailors never attempt it, but wait at the entrance till the wind will take them through. This being the reason why yesterday we had met such a number of sail altogether. Still, we had made our present anchorage against this same wind, and I decided to try to get through, making up my mind beforehand that there should be no false squeamishness about dropping back in case we should find ourselves engaged on a hopeless bit of work. One can always find a good enough reason for doing anything that one has made one's mind up to do. In this case, I had a perfect one, quite apart from the fact that we did not like staying where we were, and that the jam had been so good that we'd eaten all the bread and could get no more till we should come to Hapsal. There was a reason, pro and a reason contra. Everything, in fact, that the human mind requires when it is putting up a pretense of being logical. The wind looked like continuing, but so far as I could see through the long-distance glasses, there was not yet much current about the spar boys, which, however, were standing very high out of the water, tatters of seaweed clinging to them far above the waterline, showing their more normal depth. I was sure of two things. The first, that a strong current would be setting against us, out of the sound, within a very few hours, and the second, that I should have to deal with depths abnormally low. The first outweighed the second, and at seven in the morning our anchor was up and hanging at our bows, ready to drop at any moment in case of need, and we were off, warily back to the fairway, the lead going all the time in two fathoms of water. Then we beat up towards the two spar boys that marked the entrance to the passage. The men on the cutter, whirling out of the channel with the wind behind them, looked at us as if they thought we were mad, and shrugged their shoulders with expression. But, though Rakundra is not good at beating as compared with racing yachts, she is better against the wind than any of the local cutters and schooners, and when we set her at it this morning, she seemed to know she was expected to do her best, and did it. There was a toughish wind, too, and that always suits her. With less wind, we should not have tried it. At the same time, we left nothing to chance, and took no risks of her missing stays, which, in this narrow way between rocks and sharply shoaling banks, would have meant almost inevitable disaster. I had sweated over the chart till I knew it pretty well by heart, and indeed only looked at it twice, and that when we were already through the actual channel and were out again in more or less open water, looking for the buoys and beacons that show the way into Hapsal Bay. I therefore set the ancient at the tiller and went forward myself with the lead line handy, though as a matter of fact there was never time to use it, and it would have been useless because there was no gradual shoaling. You are either in the channel with three fathoms of water, 
or out of the channel with a fathom or less, or on a rock with no more than a couple of feet. My real business forward was to deal with the staysail in getting her quickly about, and to con the little ship in without, if I could help it, communicating to the ancient any of the doubts with which I was myself beset. I kept my eyes on the sticks which here serve as spar boys, on the colour of the water and on the bottom, often only too visible, and shouted, ready about, in a tone as near as possible that in which these words are spoken when we are at sea and have the whole Baltic to make mistakes in. At first, the ancient was just a little bit petulant at the frequency of our tacks, but we touched once with the centreboard from hanging on an extra second, once only, and from that moment he was perfect, and everything worked in the delirious, exciting manner of tightrope walking. He knew that we really were on a tightrope, and that this was not an example of my ridiculous preference for imagining, when navigating, that Rakundra has the draught of a big ship. We swung round as the words were out of my mouth, and I had the staysail aback till the mainsail filled, and we were off again, rushing from side to side of the channel, making a bit every time, creeping up in hurried zigzags, a dozen or so between each boy. The chart that I had read so often in the winter took visible, solid shape as we moved. There was mere home, there those rocks awash, there the two windmills on Nuke, and there, at last, the boy with a ball and two brooms' bases apart on the top. The brooms are not there, but that must be the boy nonetheless. It is hard enough to give an idea of how things looked. At first, of course, there was the open sea behind us, and we were pushing our way in between the wooded island of worms and the low, grass-patched and rocky mainland. The two were always a good distance apart, but outcrops from both of them were close to us, either above or under water, and at times it was difficult to preserve one's faith in chart knowledge and to sail so near these brown rocks with such a space of open water on the other side. How much simpler to sail boldly up the middle. And then, on the other tack, just a few score yards, often less, and there were more rocks under the water, or pale green shadows splashed with dark, and we were thankfully about again and scuttling back towards the brown lumps that at least were out of water and less secretive in their villainy. And yet, what a stretch of water. And round Rakundra would go again, the wavelets foaming under her bows, and so on, to and fro, to and fro, each time gaining a little southwards against the wind, through gusts of which I had to yell to be heard by the ancient at the tiller. I have enjoyed following the intricate moon sound channel from Paternoster through by the Eric Stone and Harry Island to the open sea, but there big ships could go, and we had a margin of yards and sometimes far more in case we left it for a moment. Here there was no margin at all. We were ourselves drawing with centreboard down, as we had to have it down for beating against the wind, more than most of the small coasters who alone use this channel. It was incredibly exciting, the more so that as we proceeded and time went on and the wind still blew, there was visibly growing current against us from the south through the channel. It was incredibly exciting, the more so that as we proceeded and time went on and the wind still blew, there was visibly growing current against us from the south through the channel. It became a race between us and the current and the wind. Could we indeed get through to the open sea and round into the Bay of Hapsal before the wind had made the current so great that we could not hold against it? 
Each spa boy left astern was a separate triumph, and I would hardly let myself believe that we had left the worst of the channel behind us until the view before us had already widened and we could see far into the broad sound, where, hull down, were three gooseneck schooners hurrying from the south before the wind that, for them, was a friendly ally, the same wind that Rakundra, sailing from the north, had had to meet and conquer. Author's Note I am told by the hydrographers that it is probably incorrect to say that the wind causes the current through these channels. They say that wind and current are alike, caused by pressure, the lack of it elsewhere. To the simple sailormen of these parts, however, the fact remains that the wind from the south brings current from the south. Wind from the west brings a rise of water in the otherwise tideless sound, and wind from the east lowers the waters there. In writing about these phenomena, I have written, as the men of those parts speak. Now, after just four hours of frenzied beating, we were making long attacks, keeping our eyes on two tall beacons on the mainland on the southern side of Hapsol Bay, already within the mouth of the inlet, and watching to bring two other beacons in line under Hapsol Town with its church and ruined castle. Those two beacons, one on shore and one on a bit of rock, almost awash, would lead us safely between the shallows towards the little Hapsol Harbour, on the quay of which, again, are two other beacons which, taken in line, help little ships through the last few hundred yards of their passage. We shifted from the line of the first pair to the line of the second, found the spar boys that supplement these land signs, and then, sailing east with the wind free, fairly foamed from buoy to buoy until at noon we rounded up and anchored beside two small trading cutters about a cable's length from Hapsol Pierhead. Here we lay for two nights, waiting for a fair wind, and used the intervening day of bright sunshine for the drying of bedding and mattresses, and for a visit to the town which is some little way from the jetty. Indeed, as you approach Hapsol from the sea, the jetty with the tall white granary behind it looks like an island, for the narrow strip of land that connects it with the town is flat and low. The town itself is grouped round a low hillock on which is a ruined castle which has, so we learnt, its ghosts and its hounds of hell guarding hidden treasures, all indeed that is necessary and fitting for a ruin in a popular watering hole. The castle was the evidence of the German bishops who, during the 13th century, made themselves the first foreign rulers of Estonia. The revolting Estes tried in vain to take it in 1334, 200 years and more after that it was taken by the Swedes. They did not hold it for long, for the Swedish officer commanding had no money to pay his troops and so, in those good old days of private initiative, pawned the castle to his soldiers on the understanding that, if their pay did not arrive by the next midsummer's day, they could sell the castle to whom they chose, on condition that the buyer should be a Christian but should not be either the Russian Tsar or Bishop Magnus, who had married a niece of Ivan the Terrible. The soldiers did not get their pay and did actually sell the castle for 40,000 tailors to Ungern, who was acting viceroy for the King of Denmark. Next year, the Russians took it for nothing and without meeting any resistance, for which reason the Danish leader, Stark, was duly executed in Arensburg. Ten years later, the Russians, after a fight, lost it to the Swedes, and in 1628, the Swedish king, improving on the commercial methods of the Swedish soldiers, sold it for 66,830 tailors to a field marshal, 
whose son died in the utmost poverty after his father's purchase had been quietly reappropriated by the crown, who perhaps were thinking of selling it again. But the Swedes held on to the property too long, for before they tried to sell it a third time, Peter the Great in 1710 made it Russian, and Russian it remained until 1918, when it was occupied by the Germans, on whose departure the Est came at last into their own. We had this ruin to see and, besides that, needed bread, milk, meat and matches, and had set our hearts on a cabbage which we had not been able to find in Baltic port. So, after bathing in the early morning, we walked in over the low slip of land that would certainly be covered at high tide if this were not a tideless sea, and came to the town, a little town with winding streets of stone and wooden houses, twisting about round the shallow inlets of water and from one promontory to another in a manner most confusing to a stranger. We had some difficulty in finding the shops which were, as everyone told us, in the middle of the town. The Estonians are an admirable, tenacious people, but in all the years of my acquaintance with them, I have never met one who knew how to tell me the way. They will point vaguely in the wrong direction, or if they point in the right direction, will tell you, as a landmark, to look out for a tree with a broken branch, among several hundreds, all with broken branches, instead of mentioning a large, obvious barn which a blind man could not miss. Here, in Hapsal, we found the further difficulty that the cosmopolitan season was over, and that therefore everybody had ceased to understand any language but Estonian. I was there once for a few days earlier in the summer, where most people seemed to know both Russian and German, now it was as if every linguist in the place had gone into hibernation till next spring. We did, however, at last come out in the middle of the town where we found two hotels. We tried both. In one, a man was viciously tuning a piano. In the other, there was a gramophone. In neither did we see any visitors besides ourselves, and in both we were told at once that the season was over, as indeed we were told so by everybody with whom we spoke even by the baker from whom we bought the bread, as much as to say that we had no business to be there. I got the impression that the town was quite consciously recovering itself, drawing a long breath and enjoying its nationality after the alien but profitable bustle of the summer. In summer, Hapsal is crowded with visitors who, for the most part, do not live in the hotels, but rent the little houses or parts of them at so much for the season. It is not as in England where whole families go to the seaside for a tumultuous fortnight or month of holiday. Here the men plant out their wives and children at Hapsal for the summer to get brown, take mud baths and cure imaginary diseases, while they run down from Raval by train for the weekends. There is a floating restaurant on the inland lake and great consumption of vanilla ices, besides open-air concerts, regattas and hired boats, in fact opportunities for all that such visitors demand. When Rakundra sailed in there, all this maelstrom of amusement was still. The idle crowds of hypochondriac rheumatics taking the baths and impatiently exchanging symptoms had disappeared. The little town was itself again, and if I were to stay there, the back end of the year is certainly the time that I should choose. The tiny market under the castle was quietly busy in the morning, as no doubt it has been since the Middle Ages. We met there women from the country and the islands in their local costume, 
bright red bodices, black accordion pleat skirts with red stockings, short white socks over the red stockings, and black shoes with strips of black leather crisscross over the white socks. And though the visitors were gone, the boats remained. And for the crew of Rakundra, these boats compete with the ruins as the things of most interest in Hapsal. I should explain that beyond the pier and the town and those flat promontories is a huge stretch of shallow water on which the men of Hapsal take the summer visitors sailing. This inland sea is nowhere more than a very few feet deep, and a special type of boat, unlike any others on the Estonian coast, has been evolved for sailing on it. I have a reproduction of an old drawing showing that boats something like these were in existence in the very early 19th century, if not earlier. They are shaped a little like the shallow wherries of the Norfolk Broads, but are, of course, much smaller. They have a fair-sized cabin right forward and a big well for the passengers and a small well right aft for the steersman, who, from that position, controls the sails. The mainsail is extremely high and they are sloop-rigged. They have neither centreboards nor leeboards, but, drawing not more than a couple of feet of water, they sail in the most remarkable manner, both off and by the wind. The soldiers did not get their pay and did actually sell the castle for 40,000... What? 40,000 tailors to Ungen. Good Lord. <laughs>